and at large, I'm Leonard Lopate. The COVID-19 pandemic has been one of the darker events in American history, but the human tragedy that it has wrought are only part of its terrible legacy. In a new book titled Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, award-winning ProPublica reporter J. David McSwain reveals how swindlers, price gougers, brokers, and unscrupulous politicians profited from gaming the system. It's from One Single Publishers, which is the division of Simon & Schuster, and it brings Ms. McSwain to our show now. Welcome. When the COVID crisis hit in 2020, the federal government needed far more N95 masks and other protective equipment than it had, so it began awarding contracts to companies that promised to provide them, often at steep markups. Uh, Masks that cost a dollar were marked up to six dollars? Uh, how could anybody uh, explain that? Well, yeah, we we found ourselves in a, a really tough spot. The strategic national stockpile, which housed things like masks and gloves, was woefully ill-prepared. We had something like 1% of what we needed. And you add to that the... Trump administration had really tried to downplay in those early uh, weeks and months of the pandemic. But by the time they tried to catch up, China had been buying masks out from under us. In fact, the federal government was even helping to move masks to China. And when we realized we needed things, the the national response essentially became to throw money out there to anyone and everyone who claimed they could get these things. And what you have is, you know, you have people who are price gouging, but you've also just got the federal government, states and cities and hospitals all competing for the same supplies. And, you know, sellers could really name their price and the federal government uh, signaled that they were willing to pay it. So, you know, a dollar mask became $6. And you found that two months into the pandemic, the federal government had already handed out over a billion dollars to companies that had never before had a government contract. You say a shocking number of those companies had no experience in providing medical equipment. That's right. Yeah. Um, We at ProPublica uh, were just taking a look at the contracts and the outflows of money from Washington, D.C. And, you know, just sort of anecdotally, I was noticing some really funny names. And, you know, I looked into, you know, a few contractors, some of the bigger contracts and we started to notice a trend. It seemed that anyone with an LLC and an email address could get a multi-million dollar contract for supplies because the federal government was panic buying and had basically thrown all of the rules out the window. Well, weren't some of these uh, companies run by people with a history of fraud allegations? Uh, that would have been available in public records if anybody had bothered to check. Did anybody check? Yeah, absolutely. We we found, uh, I you know, I personally just sort of looking at contractors and then doing basic due diligence, looking up, you know, when was this company formed? We found companies that, you know, had formed on a Monday and had a multi-million dollar deal by Thursday. And, you know, quick Google search revealed that, you know, these folks had been in bankruptcy, they'd been sued and, and accused of fraud by the Federal Trade Commission and so forth. It was pretty clear that the federal government was really not doing any real vetting of these contracts. Were they able to game the system because it had already been rigged in their favor thanks to decisions made by the Trump administration? How much was the financial malfeasance and swindling that accompanied the response due to Trump administration's handling of the pandemic? 
Well, we saw a little bit of both, right? So I was noticing and, you know, really set off on more than a year of reporting, uh, just people coming out of the woodwork who clearly saw an opportunity to get rich and recognized that the government didn't know what it was doing and what you could get a contract for <laughs> and either not deliver or deliver something subpar. But at the same time, at a higher level, you had people within the Trump administration, including Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his trade advisor, Peter Navarro, who sort of inserted themselves into federal purchasing and the pandemic response. And if you had connections to the Trump White House, uh, you stood a pretty pretty good chance of getting a, you know, a major deal, specifically if you had connections to Peter Navarro, who was pressuring agencies and ordering contracts, uh, which is, you know, you can't have the White House and political appointees deciding who gets taxpayer money for obvious reasons, but that's what happened. You've called Peter Navarro the Nicolas Cage of modern politics? <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he uh, negotiated a deal um, that awarded Airbus of America with a $96.4 million respirator deal? Yeah, Air Boss. Um, not to Air be Boss. I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, the I airplane misread. company. Um, yeah, so they're a rubber company. You know, they make things out of rubber, including uh, powered air purifying respirators, the sort of really high end uh, filtration devices you saw Dustin Hoffman wear in Outbreak, for instance. And you know, they, they make a legitimate product. Uh, I started to, to notice Peter Navarro's work because this company had been awarded, I think it was a 90 plus million dollar contract for these respirators at a price that they set. And, you know, someone had put in the notes of this contract as ordered by the White House. And, you know, that stood out to me as a reporter. You know, you can't have people in the White House awarding contracts. And, uh, you know, that later became the subject of a congressional inquiry into Peter Navarro and the Trump administration's sort of patronage during those early weeks. You also write that based on a recommendation by Jared Kushner, you mentioned him, Trump's son-in-law, a Silicon Valley engineer with no experience in medical supplies or government procurement was given an $86 million contract to produce 1,450 ventilators, and he failed to deliver a single piece of equipment. Did he receive any money? He, he did, actually. The, the state of New York, uh, you know, it was, it was referred from the Trump administration, uh, from the Federal Emergency Management Agency, I believe, um, or, or, or the state thought that FEMA had vetted this contractor. And, you know, the cities and states had done the really extraordinary, uh, taken the extraordinary step of paying first and asking questions later because they were so desperate for supplies and and this particular contractor was paid a portion of that. I, I believe it was, you know, somewhere around 60 million and uh, did not deliver any ventilators. And, you know, that's all wrapped up in court now as they're trying to reclaim taxpayer dollars. But they were operating under the assumption that the Trump administration had vetted this contractor. But in fact, it was hmm. just a guy who tweeted at the president. And <laughs> through um, what I detail in the book, you know, Kushner, the Kushner kids, uh, these sort of civilians who were brought into the Trump um, you know, pandemic response, you know, really escalated it. And, you know, that's how we were awarding deals. So I missed an opportunity to make a lot of money by not tweeting the president at some point. 
<laughs> yeah, you 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 might have gotten a major contract had you tweeted it. <laughs> a case you cite at the beginning of your book involved Robert Stewart Jr., an investor who had landed a thirty four point five million dollar federal contract to provide six million N ninety five masks. Although you note he had zero experience sourcing medical supplies and knew little about how to navigate the supply chain, which almost always leads back to China, where American manufacturers had outsourced to keep mm-hmm. wages low, prices attractive, and profits high. He he named his company Federal Government Experts. <laughs> right. Yeah, and he he had some expertise. He he had handled contracts at the Pentagon for many years. Uh, you know, here in the Washington D.C. area. Uh, and I, I noticed him because, you know, I decided to follow the money and, you know, the, the Trump administration is trying to catch up federal agencies are, you know, handing out contracts and it looks pretty clear to me that they're panic buying. So I just, you know, ran some filters in the data to find, you know, who are the biggest contractors. And he stood out because he had the largest deal with the veterans administration, which oversees the largest hospital network in the country where nurses and doctors were fashioning their own PPE and, and, you know, and were at serious risks and and hospitals were being overrun. So he had a big job and I kind of poked around just Hmm. doing the due diligence and it, didn't make sense that he was their primary contractor. He had never had a federal contract, as you said, no experience in medical supplies. So I just called him and, and asked, you know, how did you have these N95s that no one seems to be able to get? And he said, you know, I'm well, I'm the real deal. I, I, I have the mask. I'm going to oversee their delivery tomorrow. I'm getting on a private jet to Chicago to do it. And, and I said, that's amazing. Uh, would you mind if I tagged along? And a few hours later, I'm on a private jet with, you know, one of the key contractors in the pandemic response and slowly start to realize that uh, he may have made the whole thing up and might be committing a federal crime right before my eyes. He bid on the job. The contract was awarded without competition. And that was one of those things where the uh, where he was really hiking up the price. But um you would have thought that hiking up the price uh, to an exorbitant level would have resulted in criminal charges um, during uh, something like a catastrophe, like a hurricane. But that never happened here. Was he even penalized? So, um, well, th- those are sort of two different things. So it was hard to make the case, you know, price gouging laws are really state to state. Uh, th- there are different standards and state AGs may be more aggressive than others. Uh, but it was hard to tell what was price gouging and what was just the market. Because again, we had no supply. It, it, we had extreme demand and you have city, states, hospitals, and the federal government all competing for the same supply. So it's just really hard to tell what the true price of a mask is. So, you know, he could make, and he did the argument that, this is just what the market dictates. Um, so the, the price stood out to me, but th- that's a little bit squishier. It's un- it's unclear. Um, and he was dealing, you know, he was a middleman. He was dealing with these brokers that I came to sort of slowly understand, uh, you know, where one guy knows a guy and there's a mask mm-hmm. lot down in L.A. and everybody gets a cut and that drives up the price, too. Uh, that said, I mean, he was eventually charged and pleaded guilty to three counts of of federal fraud. 
uh, as, as a result of, you know, this little trip we took. And where does that case stand today? Uh, Robert Stewart Jr. is currently in, in prison for his uh-huh. crimes. Uh, my guess is J. David McSwain, whose book Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, is uh, published by well, a division of Simon Schuster called One Signal Publishers. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, Robert Stewart Jr. Uh, wasn't paid for the mass he didn't provide, but wasn't he still paid a lot of money through the Paycheck Protection Program? Uh, yeah, so the the federal government's defense was, well, we, you know, we didn't pay him, you know, because he didn't deliver anything. Uh, without sort of acknowledging the mess that that creates in the market. Uh, but he was, you know, after I had published a story in, in May 2020, about two years ago to the to this week, and uh, prosecutors followed up on that and dug into his finances and found that, you know, he, through his company, federal government experts, had defrauded the Paycheck Protection Program. And he did what hundreds of people did. Uh, this was a really loosely uh, overseen program that was just a bonanza for fraud. He claimed to have more employees than he did, and he got a big chunk of um, money as a result and, uh, you know, um, was charged with, with fraud for that, and, and he did repay it. Well, don't you allege that much of the $8 billion handed out by the Paycheck Protection Program went to what you call unsavory actors? Yeah, eight hundred billion actually. Uh, oh, in I'm two sorry, waves. I understated eight hundred billion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in two waves, uh, half of which uh, w- was forgiven. Um, so, you know, the way this was designed by Congress, it really set speed as a priority above all else, and there was little incentive, and in fact, disincentive really for lenders who handled these loans, banks, you know, and financial tech companies to you know to really vet applicants it was pretty much just the honor system and a lot of people uh you know just tweaked some numbers and you know lied on some documents and got millions of dollars for you know just a few minutes of work or you know detail in the book one example of a of a man down in florida who you know resurrected a dormant company of his claimed to have a bunch of employees and he just went on a spending spree bought a lincoln navigator paid off a bunch of loans. He bought a mansion outside of Orlando, and uh, and then he you know, is, it, then he ran off to Europe. Right. Yeah. So he goes on the lamb, uh, and he's eventually caught in Croatia. Hmm. And and I found this remarkable, just because it sort of says something about the moment. I, I think people really thought, you know, they're taking cues from you know the leader of the free world, and th- I think they thought they could get away with this. He tells a judge in Croatia, uh, you know, I left because what I was doing was was okay under the Trump administration, but I was worried the Biden administration was going to persecute me. Uh, and, And I, you know, which, of course, is not, you know, factual, but I found that amazing. Wasn't the Paycheck Protection Program designed to help businesses stay alive during the pandemic by offering loans administered through banks and the Small Business Administration? Um, that th- they would have been large in large part forgivable, provided uh, the people who received them could document certain things. So uh, it sounds to me like there were protections built in. What happened? 
Well, it was sort of a, you know, pay out and ask questions later uh, scenario. And, you know, to be sure, the Paycheck Protection Program did keep a lot of businesses afloat. It was designed to, you know, to keep, you know, companies from closing and employees paid so that they could feed their families and pay the rent. It did some of that. But the way it was designed in that first wave, it was really the people who had existing relationships with big banks who got the loans. And we're talking a lot of companies who shouldn't have received it, uh, you know, including like franchise hotels and, uh, you know, companies like Shake Shack and, and others that ended up giving some money back. But, you know, the people who really needed it, your Uber driver, your salon around the corner, really struggled to access that early cash. Um, so it was, you know, in those really crucial weeks, the people who really needed it, had a harder time getting it. And by the second wave of the Paycheck Protection Program, we saw the introduction of financial tech companies, which made it easier for you know your Uber driver, your salon owner, um, your sole proprietorships to, you know, to get those loans. But with that came yet more fraud on a grander scale that's going to be really hard to track down. Um, we've seen you know, last I looked like 500 uh, criminal charges brought about as a result of these, you know, relief programs. And each one of those is a case that a prosecutor has to put together. And we're going to be following that for for many years. Did the Paycheck Protection Program pay uh, a positive role in the development of, of vaccines at such a, a rapid pace? Well, I mean, those are sort of separate issues. I mean, the, the Paycheck Protection Program was a necessary program, and, and we just kind of have we have poor infrastructure for getting direct financial aid to Americans. You know, we this is the first time we've seen direct welfare on this uh, on this scale, and uh, you know, it, it was a necessary program. The vaccine came about as a result of. Um, you know, the, the Trump administration's, you know, massive investment in Operation Warp Speed, uh, you know, many, many billions of dollars to pharmaceutical companies who, you know, they built the vaccine on some existing technology, which taxpayers had largely funded through grants and public research. And, um, you know, the, the folks who were there at the right time and had the patents, um, you know, companies like Moderna and Pfizer, you know, made a lot of money. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm clear in the book that, you know, I, what I detail here is a lot of people who swindled and lied or cheated. The vaccine was a huge monumental benefit. And in the context of history, you know, a huge success. I, you know, when I got that first shot, I didn't care what it cost, you know, but I detail, you know, th this was a lot of money. And, as, and because of the you know, the, the profits and the patents, we were slow and continue to struggle to deploy the vaccine to the rest of the world. I mean, COVID doesn't care about, you know, national boundaries. Uh, so you have to ask, you know, was this the best way? Was it the most equitable way? Because there was no Jonas Salk here, um, you know, releasing a vaccine for the benefit of the world. Now, we're talking a lot about the, the, how the Trump administration dropped the ball. But you describe visiting the crumbling 
a factory in Dallas of Prestige Ameritech, one of the few American mask manufacturers, and being told by an executive that his warnings about the dangers of relying on overseas companies for masks and other medical equipment were ignored for over a decade before COVID-19 hit. So we're talking about Democrats and Republicans in the White House. Yeah, there there is blame to go uh, around, uh, you know, between both parties. I mean, it when COVID hit the Trump administration, there was one party in control and then you had the Trump administration and, you know, and their failures are, are, you know, definitive and, and damning. But before that happened, um, you know, there were many warning signs uh, that we didn't have enough supplies. You had Mike Bowen, as you said, uh, at Prestige Ameritech warning that if a pandemic hits, all of our supplies dependent on China, they're going to choke it off and, Americans will needlessly die. And he'd been calling over three administrations and uh, 13 years writing letters, really stating exactly what was going to happen. And he noticed in early January 2020, when most of us you know, had maybe heard of a novel virus in China, but it didn't affect our lives just yet, he saw in an obscure corner of his website uh, sales of N95s, which don't normally sell that much, you know, skyrocketing. And he looked at the buyers and, um, you know, it, it appeared to be Chinese surnames. And his suspicion was that Chinese Americans were buying these up and sending them to, to China and to Hong Kong because they understood the threat. And he was relaying this to Washington. And I found it remarkable that it was a guy down in Texas who you know, had sort of been sounding the alarm who really set off a chain of events uh, here. And, and it's later detailed in, you know, in a, in a whistleblower complaint and in congressional testimony. But he was just one of a few. I mean, the CDC had commissioned studies after the H1N1 swine flu epidemic in 2009 and 2010. I mean, and it was clear <laughs> there was no nuance to it. They stated, you know, there was confusion between and among states about different policies. There was competition over N95s. You know, there was confusion about who needed masks and who didn't. I mean, it really spelled out the madness that we would see if we didn't shore up our supplies and we just didn't need those warnings. And not all the masks are equal. You, you, you also talked with a man who repackages KN95 masks, not approved for a medical set, setting, and he sells them to local hospitals. Yeah. So, so who's this, in charge here? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it was that messy. So, so we didn't have the N95s, which filter, you know, 95% of particles and, you know, they're regulated in the U.S., uh, so we saw a reliance on the KN95, which is the Chinese version. And, the, you know, you, they wrap around the ear and, and rather than, you know, loop around the head. Uh, I mean, we all know this by now, but at the time there was so a what lot I have, and have on right now, in fact. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, they provide some protection, but there there was this influx of really poorly made KN95s and the CDC and, and other, you know, regulatory branches here in Washington were testing these and finding some of these are like 30% effective. Um, and I, and I came to find this group of people down in San Antonio who were repackaging masks that were so poor, they had been actually banned in China. 
Uh, and you know, basically <laughs> this, this, this is set up by a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. He hires a guy on TaskRabbit, the sort of handyman for hire app and a guy in San Antonio takes the job and it starts with him sort of picking up small amounts of KN95s at various airports in Texas and delivering them to buyers in Texas, including hospitals. And as the federal government is catching up to these masks that, you know, they create a list of masks that are appropriate for medical use and are not. And this investor had bought a bunch of masks that uh, were no longer approved. Hmm. And the packaging, in fact, uh, when they came out of China said medical use prohibited. So, <laughs> but he wanted to get rid of these masks. So his solution was to, you know, w- with his friend that he met through TaskRabbit, find more people through TaskRabbit and pay them using Venmo to take the masks out of that package and put them into a very similar package that doesn't say medical use prohibited. And that way they could sell them to the Texas Emergency Management Agency, which was, you know, mm-hmm. routing these to hospitals. And, you know, I got wind of this and showed up at the warehouse and tracked it down and talked to people. And, um, you know, the whole thing kind of blew up. But, you know, I was able to see their transactions on Venmo. I mean, it was clear as day. They were posting on social media about this repackaging operation. And it really just spoke to, you know, the disorganization, the confusion wrought by the federal government and the opportunity, uh, you know, for people who who dared to wade in and, and, and sell these things. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more. You can receive a free copy of his book, Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. You To do that, you just go online to give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number 2WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large, and we thank you very much. And return now to J. David McSwain whose book is published by One Signal Publishers. He is um, currently with the with ProPublica, uh, but he has been investigative reporter for a, a number of newspapers over the years, uh, won numerous awards, including Harvard's Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting, the Worth Bingham Prize, a Scripps Howard Award, investigative reporters and editors awards, two of those, and a Peabody. 
And uh, let's return to the conversation. Uh, you know, you worked on this story for two years. When did you begin to suspect there was an important story here? And that you, uh, and and led you to say you decided to follow the money. Yeah, so I had actually written some of the first coronavirus coverage. Uh, just looking at hospital data with some colleagues, we could tell that they were not ready. Uh, infection control measures were just failing across the board before the virus hit. Uh, and I was trying to figure out my place. You know, the, this was clearly becoming a big story. Every reporter in the world was on this story for the first time in history uh, that had happened. And just trying to figure out where I belonged and tried a few things. And then when the CARES Act was passed in March 2020, and it became clear that there's going to be a lot of money uh, applied to this. I just sort of instinctively knew, you know, people are going to take advantage of this. You know, I've been a reporter for a while and I've covered government contracting at various levels. And I just knew there's going to be something here. Um, you know, and w once the, those first contracts came out, started diving in and it was not hard to find outliers and weird deals and, you know, and shenanigans, um, you know, so I knew there'd be something, but I really was shocked at the breadth of the fraud uh, and the ineptitude of the federal government. Were people I, I, telling I, you? I, I did think there'd be more. Were people telling you, for example, what led you to visit Philicate LLC's warehouse outside of Houston, Texas on June 10th, 2020, just a few months into the pandemic? Uh, mm -hmm. You reported on how that company received a $10 million FEMA contract for test tubes, but uh, actually provided mini soda bottles instead? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, like I said, we're, you know, I'm seeing all kinds of deals that don't make a lot of sense. And that company had been formed by a, a guy who had been sued by the federal trade commission for alleged fraudulent practices. And, you know, the company formed, I think in late April, early May, six days later, it had that major deal, which is mm. a huge return on investment. So I was curious about the company. We didn't have all the answers. So we, we put it in a story about, you know, just the federal government had paid something like a billion dollars in the first two months to untested contractors. And there's a lot of weirdness. And as a result of that, I happened to be in Texas, uh, in San Antonio for the story we just talked about. And uh, a state public health official called and said, hey, I'm familiar with this company. I got their test kits from FEMA and they're completely unusable. I, I don't know what they are. They're, they're unsterile. Uh, they're all just thrown in a bag. They're supposed to be hermetically sealed. And, and this is, we're really trying to catch up to testing as a country at this moment. Uh, this is long before the deployment of rapid tests. These are the PCR tests that require real science and some lab work. And he says, you know, this is setting back testing in my state. Uh, it turns out my colleague knew what they were. They're actually many soda bottle preforms that with pressure and heat are blown up to be your two liter soda bottles at the grocery store. So and they were filled I just with saline. Thought, What's that? They were filled with saline. Was that supposed to make them uh, more effective? Yeah. So, the, so yeah. So these little soda bottles, they're not you know blown up. They're, they're filled with saline, uh, saline which is, effort. you know, it's meant to preserve a sample, you know, from the sort of nose swab that we're all kind of familiar with now. Um, but, you know, th this company had no medical background, no medical supply background, and we had a lot of reasons to be suspicious. So I, I showed up at their warehouse, 
they wouldn't let me through the front door. Uh, so I decided to sort of stake out the back door and eventually see, you know, the, the, the owner rolls up the big garage door. There's an enterprise rental truck and, and I approach and I can see workers using literal snow shovels to pick up these mini soda bottles from large bins, put them in the smaller bins workers. Some of them are wearing masks. Some of them aren't are squirting saline in there's a big industrial fan whipping air around and whatever contaminants are in it. Uh, and they, you know, they couldn't tell me that why, how these were sterile. And when I reported back to FEMA, what we had seen, uh, FEMA had already delivered these test kits to all 50 states and territories. So it set back testing, uh, all over the board and was just really, uh, really a bad development at a crucial time. FEMA had to tell those states not to use those test kits, hmm. but because FEMA had accepted them, uh, the company was paid and, you know, $10 million and contract experts I talked to said, you know, we're just astounded, you know, be, that FEMA accepted them, but because the federal government paid for something and said, okay, thanks. Uh, well, they got, it's they hard got to make what the they, case they, they got what they paid for because they exactly. accepted them and they forwarded exactly. them to the, as you said, to all the States and, and, and territories. So they, uh, in an odd way, Paul Wexler, the man you're talking about, had mm -hmm. uh, fulfilled his contract. Yeah, I mean, because FEMA accepted him, he, he fulfilled the contract. So it's hard to make the case that he should repay it. Um, you know, he is being sued for a separate uh, alleged scheme currently by the federal trade. Three counts of fraud. Yeah, in, in an unrelated suit. But yeah, he he... As far as I know, and last I checked, there were no consequences for delivering fake test kits. But meanwhile, he got, did he get his $10 million? He did. He was paid. His, his company was paid. How important was the political environment at that time? Wasn't a Department of Health whistleblower who had championed masks early on silenced by the government and, and conservative media? He was. So uh, Rick Bright uh, headed the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, which really oversaw, you know, working with private industry, you know, vaccines like, the, you know, the anthrax treatments, et cetera. And, uh, you know, he developed a relationship with Mike Bowen, the mask maker down in Texas. So when Mike sees this uptick in sales, he alerts Rick Bright and Rick tries to get uh, you know, people at health and human services motivated, but health and human services was actively downplaying the virus, uh, and really didn't want to move. And he really became frustrated by that. And, you know, eventually actually gets uh, a friendly ear from Peter Navarro in the white house, uh, Trump's trade advisor who understood the threat and the two for a time sort of became uneasy allies trying to get things, moving, including Operation Warp Speed, but he wasn't successful in getting the federal government to just get those simple, cheap masks that save lives uh, because there was so much uh, there was so many so much politics standing in the way. Well, who was responsible for slashing federal emergency funding and, and gutting the federal PPE stockpile? Do we know? Well, uh, Congress uh, under two administrations. So. It, you know, it really goes back 10 years to the, the Tea Party wave and, you know, the Republican House really trying to defeat anything the Barack Obama administration wants to do. 
Uh, and you know, they took particular umbrage at health and human services where the affordable care act was to be, you know, managed and essentially forced budget cuts across all of government. Um, and the Democrats had to choose where to spread the pain. And as a result of that, cut funding to the strategic national stockpile. And it sort of created this ratcheting down effect to where the stockpile just didn't have the funding it needed. And at the same time, about half of its budget was focused on anthrax treatments, which hadn't been deployed uh, or, or used. So we just weren't focusing on the right things. And both parties were, you know, were a part of that. Although some people did take advantage, didn't Republican Senators Richard Burr and Kelly Leffler sell off their stock portfolios in February 2020 after they'd heard a classified briefing about the coronavirus? They did. Yeah, they did. And, um, you know, law enforcement has, you know, said there's no there's no case here. But, yeah, those really early scary weeks where information was hard to come by. You know, there were members of Congress who knew exactly what was going on. And and Burr had actually said as much in a taped uh, conversation that NPR got a hold of where he said, you know, this is going to be really bad. It's going to be like the 1918 uh, Spanish flu pandemic. And at the same time, you know, he was he and others sold off stock right before that, you know, that market fall. Well, although the United States federal government has spent over $10 billion on medical protective wear and emergency supplies um, as COVID-19 swept across the country, wasn't life-saving equipment such as masks, gloves, and ventilators nearly impossible to find? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've we've rounded the corner now. I was at an Ace Hardware the other day, and they have an entire section of PPE. (laughs) It kind of you know, uh, triggered some PTSD for me because I've focused on this for so long, but yeah, it, it was, it was really just madness. I mean, you had States that were trying to circumvent the federal government. You had FEMA coming in trying to direct supplies and there just wasn't enough stuff, uh, because we didn't prepare and, and, and in fact sent supplies to China. Uh, so when we needed them, you know, all of this frenzy, all of this bonanza, you know, it, it made a lot of money for people. It cu- created a lot of stress for the federal government, but we really struggled to, to catch up to the supply. It took, you know, uh, you know, well into eight months before we got a handle on, on supplies. Well, some governors like then New York State Governor Cuomo complained about how the federal government was dealing with the crisis. Did the people in the Trump administration simply dismiss those criticisms as political? Yeah. I mean, there was, it it did become political for some reason, you know, masks were a a political wedge. Uh, You know, I'm still trying to wrap my head around that, but yeah, Cuomo had, had sort of stated what everyone was feeling. You know, there is this competition and he was, you know, fiercely competing to get these supplies, even with the city of New York, where, you know, he and de Blasio are sort of famous foes and, um, you know, they were undercutting each other and outbidding each other. And, you know, he described at one point in some of his famous press conferences, you know, it was like eBay, uh, you know, states fighting over each other or state fighting over the same supplies. And, you know, it, it really was that bad. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large. 
on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, the, my guest is J. David McSwain, whose book, Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, is published by One Signal uh, Publishers. You, you said that this is really a story about who we are, our worst impulses, what happens when we just sort of have this religious adherence to free markets. Yeah, I mean, if you talk to emergency managers, what should have happened was the federal government should have stepped in and exercised a very visible hand, uh, deciding we need these supplies. Here's what the price is going to be. The president could have invoked the Defense Production Act to compel companies like 3M and others to make masks, keep them within the U.S., and route supplies and control the market. And instead, what happened was, and, and you saw this very plainly stated by Jared Kushner and others in the Trump administration, the market's going to take care of this. And the result of that was just chaos and, you know, greed and uh, obscene profit. Because if you had a handle on these supplies or you knew someone in China who could get you a line on supplies, you could name your price and, you know, government agencies and hospitals who are trying to get these things to the front lines to save lives were willing to pay it. And it's just not a good recipe. And, you know, and in fact, a lot of the details in this book and the, you know, the various stories I tell, I really view it as a blueprint of exactly what we shouldn't do the next time we're faced with such a crisis. Well, competition is supposed to keep prices down, but since nobody was paying any attention, that wasn't happening. Uh, is there somebody in government? Was there somebody who, who should have uh, been making sure that our money was being used wisely? Yeah, I mean, this was always going to be a little bit of a mess, right? I mean, it's emergency spending. You expect to see, you know, <laughs> unwise investments and, you know, there's going to be stories about it. But the again, the scale of this was really astounding. We were so ill-prepared and hadn't heeded warnings. And basically, the national our national well-being was put in the hands of mercenaries. We were really... Uh, at their will. And, you know, the federal government and, and states and cities too really just weren't vetting these people and were just throwing money out there, hoping that something comes back. And what that did is, you know, this sort of cascading failure from the federal government on down, you know, created this bonanza market where, you know, um, brokers and investors and, and everyone was sort of looking for their, their piece of the pie. How many of these cases are in our courts right now? Well, currently, uh, you know, as I said, in the Paycheck Protection Program, hundreds of people have been charged and there's a lot more coming out of that. Uh, President Biden in the State of the Union address announced the creation of a special prosecutor for pandemic fraud. That's uh, really going to be digging into a lot of those. Um, I don't have an exact number. I mean, this happened everywhere, you know? So uh, in, in each state, there's there's going to be, you know, dozens, if not more cases. There's been uh, many high-profile federal cases, uh, including those that I detail in the book. But we're, we're going to be catching up and up to this for a long time. Are you worried that we haven't done enough to rewrite the blueprint and make sure that 
we are not doing something similar the next time we face an emergency like a pandemic? Yeah, I am a little worried. I mean, there are some clear things that are moving and, and some clear things that we can do. For instance, next time, why don't we make sure we have enough masks and gloves so that we don't have to hire you know, these random people with an LLC to get life-saving equipment. You know, that's an easy one. Uh, And the the Biden administration- Wait, wait, you point out that the federal stockpile had been neglected for for a long time. The United States had on hand just 1% of what we needed for, uh, to deal with uh, this pandemic when it hit. Right. Yeah. So let's not do that again. And, you know, if we have enough stuff, there's going to be less fraud because you're not going to have to hire Joe Schmo LLC. Right. You're going to have it. You're going to have relationships with domestic manufacturers like Prestige Ameritech and hopefully the big guys like 3M and so forth. Uh, And, you know, to that end, the Biden administration has called for something like 88 billion to be poured within health and human services. And that includes funding for the stockpile, uh, you know, vaccine development, you know, in in the CDC. I mean, we can throw money at this on the front end so that we're not losing time and lives on the back end, trying to catch up to it. Well, the Trump administration has received a lot of criticism for the way it handled the pandemic, and Congress largely went along with it. Uh, You're saying that the Biden administration has worked to correct many of the problems? Uh, Are we in a much better position, or is is there still a long way to go? Uh, We're in a much better position because we've had time and because the Biden administration, you know, took it very seriously. They, they are not without their share of mistakes, though. I mean, uh, I think we'll all recall, you know, the emergence of, of Omicron and how ill prepared we were for that. The Biden administration had leaned so heavily on vaccines as our way out of this. Uh, you know, you remember he had that July 4th deadline of something like 75 percent of everyone having a first shot. You know, it was really all about vaccines. And, you know, they underestimated vaccine hesitancy in this country and the politics that sort of swirl around that. Well, you're in Washington, D.C. I don't know what the subways are like there, but on my way in today to do the show at at our WBAI studios, I would say that, uh, well, about one quarter of the people uh, that I saw on the train were not wearing masks. Mm. That's despite the fact that there are announcements that say you have to wear a mask. Right. Yeah. uh, Things are loosening up. It does feel like we're turning a corner, but, you know, nature has all kinds of horrors lying in wait and and we're probably going to see more variants and we're going to need more um, more vaccines. But 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 to finish that point, the Biden administration's focus on vaccines came at the cost of testing. And we've caught up to this some now, but we didn't have those rapid tests deployed when Delta and Omicron hit. So that really set us back in terms of tracking and, and stopping the spread. We're a little better off now. I think we've learned some of those lessons. And for instance, I just got four tests delivered from the postal service the other day, uh, you know, which was extremely easy. So, you know, uh, both administrations, you know, have, have made mistakes. And, and it seems that we're all getting a little more comfortable and, and learning from them. Well, we have just about a minute left, but I was wondering whether anyone has asked why President Trump didn't simply invoke the Defense Production Act, the the Korean War era law that declares a national emergency earlier. 
Well, it would have, I mean, that would have implied that this pandemic was a big deal. And Trump had, you know, plainly stated that he intended to downplay the pandemic because he didn't want to create a, a scare, uh, presumably in the stock market. Um, but at the same time, the Trump administration was really sending the signal that it's pro-business, you know, and the invocation of the Defense Producti Production Act is a big deal. And you are directing suppliers and you're taking some control. And I think they wanted to avoid the optics of that. I mean, people I've talked to in previous administrations who dealt with swine flu, for instance, say you don't, you don't need to invoke it. Almost always just the threat of it. Uh, you know, gets people on board. Um, and it's it's a mystery as to why more of that wasn't done. J. David McSwain is an award-winning reporter in ProPublica's D.C. office. His book, Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick, is published by One Signal Publishers, a division of Simon & Schuster. And I want to thank you so much for being on our show today. This is Thank an important so story. Why do you think we haven't seen more of it in the newspapers? <laughs> well, we've we've seen a lot of this. I mean, it's been two years, you know, and I think we're all a little bit tired, uh, you know, and would would like to move on. But it's important to take a look back at history and, and, and acknowledge our mistakes so that we can do it better next time. Thank you again. Uh, that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you can get a podcast. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or by going online to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number to WBAI.org. Please do it right now because... We need your help to keep bringing this unique, in-depth content information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Pandemic Incorporated, Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick by J. David McSwain. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBA. On the other hand, you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say thanks. Uh, thank you with a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a WBAI buddy for $15 a month or more. Either way, you'll call, if you call right now, uh, I hope you will. Because WBI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants. We are the only station in New York that's 100% listener-sponsored. And we hope that uh, we're going to be here for a long time in the future. Uh, we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when our guests will be our favorite language experts, Kathy and Cross Petrus. We'll see you then. <laughs>